Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. Alright, welcome to Adult Dose. So these are really loose for the most part. I just sit down and I start talking about a concept that is on the forefront of my mind. Today we're going to talk strength and conditioning. In particular, I'm going to talk about why I program my system from central nervous system demandant to mechanical chemical demandant. I talk about some stuff in between and ramble on a bit, but that is the gist of what I'm going to talk about today in Adult Dose. All right, welcome to the show. So before I start getting into the concepts that I wanted to talk to you guys about today, we have to really sort of go over a couple things that I think are really important. When I think of program design, I'm a bit of a traditionalist because I became educated in the systems prior to the protocol methods of program design. So when we talk about protocols, what we're really talking about is strength and conditioning coaches that use very basic four weeks, six week or less systems that they cookie cut and then give to everybody. The problem with protocol systems is they're only good for the four weeks that you use them if you've never done that type of training before. So an example. Okay, so imagine that we have a situation where an athlete has just finished a maximal strength phase and it's been 12 weeks long and now they need to reload. So instead of going into a well thought out cohesive GPP program that takes into consideration a lot of variables, a coach will just come in and be like, you need German volume training, which is 10-10s, right? Some arbitrary thing that they gave a name to so they could sell a book. Okay, so 10-10s works for volume, but it doesn't mean that it is cohesive to the long-term programming of the athlete. Because when 1010s become recognizable by the body and 1010s no longer elicit the success by the athlete, where do you go from there? Five fives? Well, you can't go five fives. That's too dramatic of a drop of volume. You'll peak the athlete prematurely. Do you go eight eights and use the Vince Garanda protocol? Sure, you could do that, but then where do you go from there? Where does Vince Garanda's eight eight protocol go? And why is Vince Garanda get credits for doing eight eights? So you can see what I'm talking about here. Like it, it, protocol method is a bit of a bullshit thing. Okay, if you don't understand progressive variables, if you don't understand that volume has to decrease over the course of a training block as intensities escalate over the course of a training block, regardless of what your training goal is, and you don't monitor those things, you're going to run into situations where the body stops progressing. Training at the end of the day is a continuum. It is a linear continuum, but the beginning and end are not steadfast. What was once the end will become the beginning, and what was once the beginning will become the end. It's not infinite. It's not some mythical fucking guru shit. But basically what I'm saying is you will reset over and over and over. And when you reset, you reestablish baselines. Your baselines hopefully will improve. And as they improve, your peak performance output at the end will improve, even if it's, even if it's hypertrophy. A lot of people think that there shouldn't be as much focus 
on de-escalations of volumes and escalations of intensities in pure hypertrophy training. But the reality is, is there has to be, because if not, your body won't progress. Simply squeezing a muscle under load is not enough to elicit change in the majority of athletes. The reason why we see that rule get broke so easily nowadays is because peptides, steroids, and some other gear are really fucking good at it. They break rules for us really, really well. When you can inject yourself some, with, a, with a peptide that's going to manipulate, manipulate whether or not your genetic code inhibits the growth of muscle mass, right? you are going to be able to break the rules of basic training physiology. Now, when you step away from that, and let's step back into the other side of the world and the non-internet side, the non-muscle for show, no-go side, you have to remember drug testing still fucking exists. So how do you maximize performance in a world where in which testing is probably going to get you by the nuts more times than not? Well, you have to have a much more thought out, progressive, non-protocol, non-bash everyday mentality. You have to start looking at program design as a long-term plan and not a four-week short-term fix. So when you start to break down program design from that standpoint, you still go back to the bases of the three systems. The three systems are micro, meso, and macro. For people rolling their eyes right now because they're like, oh, fuck, I know this. I'm a strength coach. This is silly. Yeah, of course you know this. Doesn't mean you're any fucking good at it, right? But yeah, it's standard knowledge. The reality is, is a lot of people don't even know that a micro, meso, or macro cycle system exists. So you have to make sure that you understand the basics. So when you break that down, it's super simple. Macro is typically a year. Meso is the months. Micro is the days. That's a very, very black and white way to look at it. You can get a lot more complex than that, but for most people, they don't have to. When I start looking at program design, I work from the micro to the macro. Because even the mesocycle level, like the four-week phase or the six-week phase, it's a little conceptual, right? Macro is definitely conceptual. That's the idea that I'm training for the world championships in May mentality, but you don't know if you're going to tear an ACL. You don't know if you're going to have setbacks. You don't know if you're going to have weather delays. You don't know any of that shit that happens at the micro level. Even the meso level can be a little hit or miss at times, right? You're going to miss training that you thought you should have hit because of external circumstance, right? So the micro level is where I like to start. That's the nuts and bolts because that's the thing that you can control pretty much in real time. You don't have to plan ahead at the micro level. If the athlete is in the gym, you're good to go. So when I look at the micro level, the daily workouts, which make up a week of training, okay? I like to take three primary focuses per week. These, when I look at the three primary focuses, they're not revolving. So if I have three primaries in week one, it's going to be the same three primary goals that I'm trying to achieve in week four or at the end of that mesocycle, okay? You want to maintain consistency. Now, those priorities are going to change over the course of the year from, say, GPP all the way through to hypertrophy and eventually performance, but 
per month at a time you're trying to maximize. Now there's going to be certain things, certain priorities if you got an athlete you're working with or you got an injury that you're overcoming with, they're going to stay the primary for weeks and weeks and weeks because that's a necessity, right? In the sport of Olympic lifting and powerlifting, your three lifts or your two lifts, that's your primary focus, week in and week out. Now the other one or two variables that go along with it you can play with a little bit maybe it's volume maybe it's supplemental movements maybe it's strengthening up a couple secondaries but more for the most point you're going to be looking at those three primaries all year long right so if i was to use like a simple example if i got a athlete that's training on a four-week mesocycle and will experience let's say 10 separate mesocycles before the month of July. All right, so this athlete is starting their training block in September like most college athletes would in Olympic sports like track and field. So they're gonna do 10 separate mesocycles, each one about four weeks in length that'll commence in July. During the months of September, the athlete's focus might be general flexibility, heart rate variability, and circus-based ba circus weight work, okay? So it's GPP. The athlete's focus in June for contrast may be power development, specific flexibility, and restoration. So maybe in, 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 in June, you got a situation where, you know, things like fitness, health, and wellness have to take a back seat to high performance because eventually what you have to understand is that if the athlete is going to be successful and that's that's ultimately your goal then they have to always put health and wellness on the side for performance and winning it's a bit of a taboo subject but you, you just sort of have to eat that pickle as it comes right like if you want to be an athlete eventually your training is less about health welfare and longevity and more about winning and then if you stay healthy and you've bulletproofed the body enough during the off season, you go back to longevity, well, <laughs> welfare, and health in the off season. Again, it's a continuum. End becomes beginning, beginning becomes end, and the circle of life continues. But the question is, is why do we choose three primaries? Why is that so important? Why not five? Why not two? Why not one, right? Why not be super focused because I'm hardcore? Well, the reason of three, is during the adaptation process of physical development, Tudor Bompa, who's a fantastic strength coach, theorized that the average athlete can only handle and or progress three neurologically demanding tasks per training block. Okay, so an example in real life, okay? An athlete friend of mine was one of the only people I know who's ever been coached directly by Tudor Bompa. Now, Tudor was coaching him in the weight room, and this athlete was throwing a hammer as their sport. So the athlete came from a traditional hammer-throwing background, a lot of Olympic lifts, a lot of deadlifts, a lot of back squats, a lot of good stuff like that. Tudor, when he looked at what this athlete was doing, immediately removed a lot of the highly neurologically demanding movements from his training. The reason being, is hammer throw is such a complicated sport for the central nervous system. There's so many things happening that have to happen fast that doing all these complex lifts like Olympic lifting 
on a number of days that they're throwing is exhausting the central nervous system. So the athlete doesn't have the tools in the toolbox to be able to master the sport and maximize the velocitized aspect of hammer throwing while at the same time mastering the velocitized aspect of weightlifting. Okay, and a lot of people don't get this because all they do is lift weights or they're, they're not totally thinking about the correlation. They see how athletic athletes are and they just are like, well, they can clean and sprint at the same time. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is they're just super beings and you may still be doing them harm without even realizing it. So with that being said, you have to sort of put together and plan your primary movements so that they don't steal from one another. If you have an athlete that is trying to master the snatch while at the same time trying to master the pole vault, you're probably going to have one if not both suffer dramatically from that poor programming. So you have to start looking at how does your program work and how does it work in a way that it doesn't exhaust the CNS. So in this hammer thrower's existence, Tudor pulled out all the Olympic lifts because they were too neurologically demanding and put in what you would think of as very simplistic motor patterns that made him very strong. So deadlifts became a fundamental, which a lot of people are like, yeah, but where's the power production? Well, the power production happened in a different activity than the weight room, okay? So for example, this athlete spent a huge amount of time getting extremely strong in the fundamental pull of the deadlift. Well, using what you would think of is for lack of a better word, dumb exercises to work on the explosive power production aspect of triple extension, okay? So instead of using a snatch to strengthen the hammer release in that old ideology of triple extension overhead, the athlete went to ball throws, heavyweight throws, full extension overhead throws with the shot put, that became his power production. That became the velocitized aspect of strength and conditioning. He took uh, inner tubes from, from 18 wheelers and they filled them with sand to a specific weight and those became objects they threw out of the snatch position. They took away all the technical aspects of weightlifting so that the technical aspects of hammer throwing were the central nervous system specific task. Weightlifting became what it was meant to do, make him fucking cock strong. And then once he got fucking cock strong, he could throw the hammer really far because he had the energy reserves to focus on the accelerated or the velocitized aspect of a technical sport. Okay, so that's an example of why we try to stay three primaries, take three focuses, don't overcomplicate it. You don't want to get into a situation where you're teaching an athlete the sport of Olympic weightlifting, which the last I checked, people spend their whole life mastering to get an Olympic medal, while trying to master the sport of hammer throw that people spend their whole life trying to master to get an Olympic medal. Don't be so fucking arrogant, right? So you have to think in terms of what am I doing and what amount of energy am I stealing from my athlete by doing it? So for an example, if I had an athlete that was an American football player in the, on the offensive line, transitioning from off-season to pre-season with the three primary mentality. During his transition, the athlete is now working on specific field skills related to sport. His neurological demand is pass protection, hand fighting, run blocking, sprinting, and anaerobic capacity. 
play repetition. If the athlete is developed, developmental and lagging behind in physical preparedness and any additional demand on skill development at this time will result in a decreased development of any one or all of their skills. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that if you use the same methodology, the three primaries, and you don't use it correctly, so for example, you take that athlete and you start focusing too much on power production too early and you start focusing on maximal strength too early and you didn't take any time in the off season to bring up general fitness heart rate variability or conditioning in that athlete or basically take three primary demands that are specific to an off season and you rush them along too quickly or overcomplicate it by diversifying the athlete too fast too soon, you'll get into a situation where their quality of play, the skill of the position will suffer because they are not fit enough to maintain the level of volume required by the magnitude of practice. So if you don't specifically focus on the right, right energy systems, the right primaries at the right time, and, you, and you're too sporadic and too protocol-based and too all over the road, your athlete may not have the fundamentals in place to be able to progress and to actually shine. And if you get your athlete cut or you lose that athlete at the professional level because you did such a piss-poor job as a programming coach and they weren't physically prepared to practice, and that's where they get paid, then you're in deep, deep trouble as a professional. Okay, So you have to think of it that way. You have to think about how you break down the skills. What are you focusing on? Are you focusing on the right things at the right time? So if you're focusing on GPP and you're focusing on heart rate variability, bringing up general base level conditioning so that they can handle the workload or the magnitude of the workload to come, that's going to progress if properly done and translate into their ability to handle greater volumes of practice. When you think of GPP with athletes, you're not just getting them into shape because that's what you're supposed to do. You're getting them into the best specific shape possible for the nature of their sport. So if they're an Olympic lifter, that might be fives or sixes in the back squat so that their ability to tolerate more doubles and singles and triples goes up. And what that allows them to do is to rest quicker, allow the body to get back to parasympathetic baseline between repetitions or exertions, and be able to repeat that process over and over and over. You get athletes into shape specific to their sport in the offseason so that they can practice more. That's it. Now, we can talk about bulletproofing and preventing injuries, and that's important. But at the end of the day, like I said, sport takes precedent, performance takes precedent, and you have to be able to increase volume of skill so that you can actually master the skill. When looking at the demands of an athlete, they're going to fall into one or two primary categories. Athletes training for sport, which by default makes the weight room purely supplemental to a larger goal, and two, athletes that lift weights as their form of personal activity, recreational. Now here's the thing that really pisses people off. If you go to the gym five days a week and you are fucking shredsville, you're strong as shit, you look amazing, and you don't use any of that for any measured performance. You are recreational, period. You're not a fucking professional. I don't care what you put on your social media. 
If you don't have a measured result at any period during 52 weeks where in which a third party determines whether or not you were successful or failure, you are by default recreational. And at that point, the rules change dramatically in terms of what you can get away with, okay? That's a fact. I have been recreational for fucking 10 years, right? I was professional for a lot longer. That's reality. That is the difference. Fucking accept it. Suck it up. Once you establish the difference between that, you have to then realize as a recreational athlete, your mistakes in the weight room or your mistakes in training are going to have less of an effect on your long-term success. It doesn't make them any less significant in their ability to stall your progress, but it definitely changes whether or not they'll be noticed. You can reset over and over and you can get away with it because nobody's watching. Professional athletes don't have that, right? So as a coach to an athlete that is getting measured, and professional is anybody that competes, okay? You don't have to catch a dime to consider what you do to be professional. When you are professional, you could be somebody that's competing for a title in powerlifting, and that title in powerlifting is going to give you a trophy. But at that moment, you are stepping out of recreation and stepping into the realm of competitive, right? You're, you're acting in a certain way. You're following the guidelines of administration. You're following the guidelines of a federation. People that take this shit really serious. By default, you should too, making you a professional. Be one. When you look at it that way, you're training what you do in the weight room with that athlete, what you do with yourself is going to be measured once, twice, 10 times in a year. And every time it's measured, you're going to know whether or not you're shit or success, right? So you have to acknowledge that there's a difference because one is going to be noticed and one is not. It doesn't mean that those that aren't noticed for their shitness aren't going to have more success when they realize that they should be noticed, okay? Once you establish that reality, then you have to go back and look at how you're setting up your micro level, okay? And how those micro levels move and, and progress into your meso levels. When I look at setting up programming from this standpoint, the first thing that you have to look at is your day of training. How do you break down your exercise selection, okay? Now, there's a lot of different ways in body part training, full body training, split training, this type of training. That's all fantastic, but once you get past that, it still comes down to what energy do you have for the next 60 minutes and how do you set up your training in that 60 minutes that is gonna have the best correlation to your long-term success. So what does that mean, okay? It means this. You have to take the most centrally nervous system, the most central nervous system demanded movements of the day, of the training block, and you have to put them in order of priority. So before you even start thinking about your sets and reps and thinking about your volume parameters and your tonnage for that day or that microcycle or that mesocycle, you have to think about what am I doing today and are the exercise selections that I'm choosing going to be a cumulative effect to success or am I doing a bunch of hodgepodge bullshit because I like to fucking stay 
stick my dick in my ear. And when you look at it this way, it's going to really start to make a lot more sense to you, okay? So what does that mean? Let's take a lower body workout, not even Olympic lifts, because that, that's really actually quite easy. <laughs> Fucking they go first, period. When you look at, say, a standard weightlifting session that has... Oh, I don't know. Let's say somebody that, even though I don't recommend it, squats and deadlifts in the same day. All right. It's just a little too much cumulative pattern. But say they do that. And then after that, they're going to do some leg press and some leg curls and some leg extensions. Or maybe they got some single leg step ups in there. They got all these options. How do we look at that day and how do we put it in order so that you have the best measure of success okay well for starters you take the greatest centrally nervous system demanded movement and that's what you got to do first after you warm up the reason being is because regardless of how you hear stories about pre-fatiguing and activation this and activation that what you want to focus on is long-term success okay so you can hear and read all this stuff about doing leg extensions before you back squat, but all it really does is ensure that your most bang for your buck exercise gets the shit kicked out of it by putting it back in order. So when you look at CNS, you got to look at a couple variables, risk, load, kinesthetic awareness, motor pattern, okay? So even if an athlete has a better deadlift than back squat in this scenario, the back squat because of risk, motor pattern, and other variables related to the movement complexity, it has to go first. Because the opportunity for the athlete to get injured from fatigue is exponentially higher in a poorly executed back squat than a poorly executed deadlift, okay? If you do a if you have a poorly executed deadlift, it's either not going to come off the ground very well or you're going to probably blow out your low back. If you have a really poorly executed heavy back squat, you're breaking legs, blowing out knees, busting necks, shit's going sideways fast, okay? So that's priority one. You got to look at that. You're like, okay, so which exercise has the greatest risk to reward? Back squat, okay? It takes the most athletic ability out of the two. So that goes first. Priority one, we're going to squat. Now, after you make that decision, number two, because for some reason you want to deadlift on the same day, that variable is going to go second. Why does it go second over other exercises that could come along that may take more athleticism? Is because the deadlift is probably still going to have the highest load in terms of weight on the bar that's going to be used for that training session in relationship to the back squat. Maybe it's more than the back squat, maybe it's less, but compared to a step up, significantly more. And at the end of the day, the central nervous system is going to be the prime driver of maximal strength. And the ability to initiate a strong pull is going to be related to a lack of fatigue, right? Anybody that's doing deadlifts for the sake of fatigue has already lost the race to long-term success. So when you look at it that way, it's going to be the next big mover, okay? It's going to be priority two, you go squats, you go deadlifts, and now we start to look at what we have next. When we look at what's coming next, we probably, if we've done it correctly, are looking for movements that are going to have a specific purpose for the lower body. 
It's either going to be a quad specific, hamstring specific, maybe we're going to superset some stuff, we're going to pair some stuff up. Now we start to look at things in terms of which ones have the next highest level of central nervous system demand and which ones do we need to put behind squats and deadlifts so that we still get the most out of them while our energy's up. So for example, we're comparing say lunges and leg extensions. For most, it seems like a no-brainer. The lunge goes next. Why does the lunge go next? Is because you're moving athletically in free space. You're not confined to a machine with a fulcrum that's going to help you stay in line. And if things go awry, you're going to crash. You're going to fall. You're going to tear. You're going to blow up. Step up, split squats are all the same in that regard. So that movement pattern is going to go next. What's it going to be paired with? It's going to be paired with probably an agonist-antagonist movement. So if we know that a lunge is predominantly going to be a flexibility movement for aspects of the anterior chain or quadricep in the trail leg while activating glute, ham, and quad in the lead leg, we know for the most part it's still going to be a little more quadricep dominant because of that. And because you also get that release of the trail leg in terms of the anterior plane or the quadricep, it's going to allow us to maximally recruit in a paired or supersetted posterior chain movement. So for example, you could pair up a lunge, a walking lunge, uh, a drop lunge, some sort of movement that is lunge-like. You could pair that up with an exercise like a single leg RDL with dumbbells. Or, you don't have to think, you just have to work, and you're causing trauma, and you know that when you're done with knee flexion and knee extension, all the fibers are trashed. You've moved from a CNS dominant exercise like a back squat or front squat, as that CNS continuum shifts towards mechanical, which would be just basically anything that is going to cause a lot of trauma to the tissue, leg extension, leg curl. You also move from large compound to specific isolative. Okay, so that's an example of how I break down a given day. Because at the end of the day, unless you know your long-term program design parameters, sets, reps, it's all a part of a huge continuum, okay? There is no protocol. Protocols are fucking bullshit, right? Why are they bullshit though? That's the real question. Okay, so before I answer that, let's go back to the fact that work from CNS dominant to mechanical dominant from the start of a workout to the end of a workout. So let's give one more example. Let's give an example of an athlete that's doing, say, power cleans in their workout, back squats in their workout, but they also have to have a little bit of metabolic power exercises in say anaerobic uh, power, anaerobic capacity in there, okay? So what would that be an example of? Someone that has to be a little bit more uh, developed. They can't just be focusing on one goal, so they have to do a little bit of conditioning in that workout, okay? Now, a caveat to that. Sprinting is the most centrally nervous system demandant movement that you can do because of the velocity of repetition. So if someone has to sprint, they always have to sprint before they go to the weight room, always. Anyone that argues that has never spent any time with fucking track and field athletes in their life. A track and field athlete is not going to do a max effort squat or a volume squat session before they go run their repeat 150s. They're not. 
That's a fucking fact. Anybody that doesn't know that doesn't know anything about high-level athletics, period. Okay, So you're going to put your field sports first because that's where the risk of injury is. You want to go out and run an athlete on tight calves, fucking blood-gorged hamstrings and quads, yeah, let's see how that goes, okay? So you're going to do your field work first, hardcore sprints, then you're coming in. But say the athlete isn't doing that type of specific uh, mechanical movement. Maybe they're using something like a prowler. So it's not true sprint mechanics. It's just a little bit of anaerobic capacity work in there. When you set up something like that, the CrossFit methodology would be, well, let's just do cleans until we fucking vaporize. But the real mentality the long-term healthy athlete mentality is going to still use that CNS to mechanical advantage mentality. So we know that the greatest risk to reward in this scenario again is going to be the Olympic lift, period. Okay, I don't care. It doesn't matter what sets or reps we're doing. Fuck, we're not, we don't even know what time of year it is. All we know is they got cleans first. Okay, if they had snatches, the snatches go before the cleans. Why? Because the length of pull is longer, the speed of execution is faster, and the bar goes overhead, which makes it riskier. Okay, so snatches go before cleans, but if there's no snatches, then cleans are numero uno, followed by whatever squat variation or pull variation that they have. As the bar slows down, the complexity of movement decreases the order of exercises changes. So the fastest, most volatile, dangerous movements go first, period. Anybody that's programming cleans after squats, they're simply not warming up correctly, okay? They're not. So a lot of people will be like, I like to squat first because then when I get to the clean, it feels better. Warm up better, period. Start doing a dynamic warm up that stimulates the nervous system and clean first, squat second, okay? Squats, although were more complex than the pulls in the last example, are less complex than an Olympic lift by far, okay? So in that situation, you want to clean first. Your cleans will be progressive to squats. After you squat, say we're later in the season, okay? So maybe we're not doing bilateral single leg movements right now. Maybe it's just all just grind session, big compounders. Okay, so you're gonna clean, you're gonna squat. Maybe after you squat, maybe you're doing a barbell RDL, okay? A heavy RDL, dynamic hips, good tension, boom, that follows the squat. Why? Because it's simpler, right? It's a simple movement compared to the squat. It's a really simple compared to the clean, power cleaner variation. From there you transition, now you got your basically anaerobic capacity, triple extension, which is going to be a sled push, right? The best thing about doing prowler pushes, sled pushes, wagon pushes, is it allows you to get into single leg triple extension or bilateral triple extension, or even you, you know, uh, unilateral triple extension or uh, bilateral where you go two legs at the same time reset. The nice thing about it is, is it's a safe way of doing a dynamic movement. Either way, that's going to go last, okay? So even though the sled push or the prowler push could have a high frequency in, in comparison to, say, a back squat or a high uh, velocity in relationship to an RDL, 
The movement itself is not a true sprint in nature, and because you're moving in a direction of exhaustion of the mechanical energy systems, the mechanical chemicals, so they're, they're producing a lot of lactate, they're breathing really hard, their central nervous system is going to be shut off. Basically, they're going lizard brain because they can't see very well, because they maybe are getting inadequate oxygen because you're pushing rest-to-work ratios. You don't want to do that stuff and then put them back into a barbell situation. You want to finish with that because like I always say, the worst thing that can happen from a really bad set of prowler pushes is you fall down and vomit. That's it, right? The sled stops moving and there you lay. Done, okay? But if someone thinks that they're going to come in and do these high-velocitized you know, medium, low-weight prowler sprints like an animal and then they're going to go squat, Again, congratulations, you just wasted time, right? Set up your workout to always go from central nervous system demandant to mechanical chemical demandant. Do all your trauma, all your tearing, all your hypertrophy, all your manipulation of tissue work at the end of the sessions. Do all your gassing anaerobic capacity work at the end of the session. Do all your central nervous system maximal strength stuff at the start of the session. You will get the most bang for your buck, okay? So when you start to look at training from that standpoint, it sounds like a lot of talking for a very simplistic concept. You want to set up your most risky, dangerous, centrally nervous system demanded movements earlier in your system. Your one reps, two reps, cleans, snatches, shoulder press, jerks, bench press if you're doing a heavy bench press day with supplementals to follow that are not the bench press. Overhead presses always take precedent to movements that are say less uh, harmful okay so like a jerk will always take precedent to a back squat even if the back squat is a much heavier movement and you do them on the same day again it comes down to risk to reward right the reason is is you don't want to put a fatigued athlete under a bar that could come crashing down on their head plus anything that has a maximum barbell velocity in relationship to the weight on the bar. So like a jerk compared to a bench press, a jerk is a much faster movement. So not only is it overhead, but it's also going to accelerate over a longer range of motion at a greater velocity than the same movement pattern in the bench press, okay? So when you look at that, start thinking of your program design in terms of setting it up like that. Start looking at how is the exercise in relationship to the other exercises in the program and go through your checklist. Is this a danger to my athlete potentially? Yes, no, yeah, maybe, right? Is this exercise have a high load related to it? Is is the is the weight that the athlete lifting is it is it high? Is it is it a high percentage of their ability? That's going to move it towards the CNS side, right? Is the movement going to have more of a stress to tissue or to the neurological system meaning which is it a bicep curl or is it an overhead shot put throw right if it's a bicep curl obviously it's going to follow an overhead shot put throw for distance because it has a direct stimulus to the tissue you're going to be damaging or basically causing damage to the tissue with the intent to manipulate change 
there's going to be a momentary loss of force production. That momentary loss of force production, inflammation, swelling, all the secondary effects of lifting is going to decrease the ability to have been efficient at the overhead ball throw. So you're not going to get the stimulatory power production effects of overhead ball throw if you followed up if it follows something like bicep curls, okay? So you always keep these things in the in the most forefront of your programming mind, okay? So when you're setting up your client's program, hit them hard with the CNS stuff first. Then move into the more muscular, mechanical, chemically demanding movements. Basically, just think of it, go, it doesn't matter what the sets and reps are. Your workout goes from strength, to muscular hypertrophy, to conditioning, lactate, anaerobic, aerobic. Keep it that simple, right? And as the repetition volume increases during a given session, it moves towards the tail end, right? So if you're using you know, a vertical integration model and you know that the athletes are gonna be doing doubles and triples in an Olympic lift, threes to fives in power compound movements, and then six to tens in supplemental bilaterals, that's the order the movements typically will go in the workout as well, right? Because the heaviest, most demanding risk-involved exercises need to go when the system is most healthy and active to work, all right? So that is the quick and dirty adult dose of why I set up my training to go central nervous system to mechanical. And uh, we'll just keep rolling with this, man. These are going to be intermittent. Sometimes I'll have a guest. Sometimes I won't. But that is, uh, that's about 40 minutes for you. All right. Catch you later. Thank you for listening to Ecobolic Radio. For more information about upcoming guests and episodes, please follow Derek Witzke on his Instagram or at DerekWitzke.com. 